0: Okay. I want to get a r- little more practical, and again, this is going to be preaching to the converted, because your church planters, by nature, there's been a lot of multiplication that I've heard about in the room, even tonight. But maybe if I can just share with you, um, just in, in my, my very simple way, just what's transformed our local church over the last six years, from being a largely um, uh, fine-appearing church, but inward-focused, to being a multiplying um, missional church community um, that we think is going to lead to lots of other church communities. And so I live with a duality of roles, kind of a tension. Um, I love being an elder in the wonderful local church of Bryanston Bible Church in Johannesburg, but then also serve with Acts 29 in Southern Africa to help see churches planted that go on to plant more churches. Now that introduces a tension because in the Acts 29 world, you've got this go and plant kind of thing. And then in the local church world, you've got this stay and protect Kind of thing. And so you've got this local church that you wanted to nurture and grow and, and help to get off the ground. But then you've got this impulse as well all the time to see churches multiplied um, through the nations. And so started to develop this deep theological conviction that we now hold to at BBC. But I wanted to walk you through the journey that helped us to hold these, if that's okay. This deep theological conviction that where the gospel is faithfully taught and where the gospel is faithfully believed, multiplication will inevitably take place. It must. And so where the gospel is faithfully taught and where it's faithfully believed, multiplication of believers and multiplication of churches is an inevitable consequence. When I came to BBC as lead pastor six years ago, we weren't seeing that happen. We weren't seeing new believers come to faith, and we hadn't planted a church in 40 years. Now the church, on measurables that most of us attempted to measure week in, week out, was healthy. Because how do we measure week in, week out, bums and bucks, right? I've got an app on my phone. I can tell you how many bums were in seats this last Sunday and how many bucks were put in the bag, all right, or, or, or given uh, online. And in those measurements, we were healthy. There was a lot of people gathering on a Sunday, and there was more money than we knew what to do with. And yet, we weren't seeing people come to Christ. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately it's a different currency down here so it's DA currency so it doesn't, doesn't work but uh, we weren't seeing more people coming around, and we weren't seeing um, more churches planted so we went back to the drawing board and we had to develop some deep convictions what we came away with won't surprise any of you but it's actually changed the game for BBC so the stuff we already knew that we actually just had to start to believe and I believe it can help others to keep the main idea the main idea of the church because you would have had a main idea of your church when it was planted You've probably drifted away from it quite significantly, and so I want to just bring us back to what the main idea of every church is. And so we went back to the Great Commission that Jesus gives the church. Don't, don't get annoyed in your head. Okay, you're like, seriously, Matthew 28? We're going to go there? Yes. And we should again and again and again again. And we try to develop a purpose statement not off of something that would tweet, not off of something that would fit on the wall, not off of something that would make us zhuzh and understood by millennials. We try to say, what did Jesus say is the purpose of every church? Let's start there. If it doesn't fit in with that, then it's stupid to start with. So regardless of how well alliterated or witty it is, or uh, if you could tattoo it on your forearm in Greek, it doesn't matter unless it fits in with the great commission that Jesus gave the church so so just listen afresh i know you know this text but i just want to lay a foundation then we'll get into some real practicalities here's what jesus says matthew 28 16 to 22 uh, to his followers to to the early church the 11 disciples went to galilee to the mountain to which jesus had directed them and when they saw him they worshipped him but some doubted. it's so grateful that the doubt is in there as well and included just an incredible thing you see they see the resurrected christ some of them are like, nah, I don't know. All right? And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's great news. He doesn't say all authority has been given to you, the church. That would be terrible news. He says all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, because of that, because I'm trustworthy and because I have all authority, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now again, we've got theologians in the room, so you understand this. There's one main verb, there's three participles. The main verb is... Make, all right. That's the main verb, actually. In English, we put it in different order. The main verb is make disciples, right? That's the big idea. There's three participles. The, the three of those is you're going, you're baptizing, and you're teaching. Those are, those are the three ways that, that you make disciples, but the big instruction is to make those disciples. And so my first observation is this, and don't write this down or tweet it out because it's so obvious, but the big idea of the church is to make disciples <laughs> who make disciples. Now, this actually changes everything if you actually start to believe it. The big idea of the church is to make disciples of Jesus who make more disciples of Jesus. There's, there's some suppositions in there that we have to believe. There's, there's, there's three different things that you need to see happening there. You need to see people who weren't disciples before becoming disciples. So you've got to see people crossing the line of faith. Then you've got to see people growing more Christ-like, so growing in obedience through faith. And then you've got to see people going, okay, multiplying, to go get other people who haven't crossed the line of faith, so that they can cross the line of faith, so that you can baptize them into the faith, and that you can teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded. And so it's this wonderful circular thing. Go, baptize, teach. Go, baptize, teach. Go, baptize, teach. But implied in that is a moving Right? That people are going from unbelievers to believers. They're going from immature believers to mature believers. And then they're going from living for themselves to living for the name and fame of Jesus Christ. And as they do that, they'll go find other people who are unbelievers, who become believers. You see the thing? And so the church is supposed to be this big, never-ending, maturing, sending agency. Don't just nod. How are you doing at that? Do you know how well to measure? Do you know how, how to measure how well you're doing? You see, now, we don't like to make this the big idea of the church because in some ways it's hard to measure. How do you measure maturity? Well, there are ways, but it's harder than measuring buns and backs. <laughs> and so we've got to figure out those things. How are we doing at seeing unbelievers come to faith? Well, you can measure that one. all right? How, how, how are you doing that? How are you doing it in baptizing? How are you doing it teaching the full counsel of God? How are you doing in sanctification in your church? And then how are you doing it mobilization for mission so that people are going to get... Those are the big measurables of the church. We should have apps for those numbers. For how we're doing at that but it's harder to measure then there's an underlying subplot that ties it all together It's supposed to be in life on life relationship when jesus says make disciples the three men sitting there have been on a three and a half year camping trip with jesus they know what it look what discipleship looks like they're like i know you you know me we walk together i've become more like you as a result that's discipleship and so there's this big subplot no people win them to christ mature them in the faith and then send them so that they'll know people and that they'll, they'll win them to Christ. And so guys, listen, I know it's like closed over here, like, seriously, you guys didn't know this? We did, but we didn't. Churches are supposed to be places where everyone is moving forward in faith, together. And so we stopped six years ago and we said, okay, BBC, how how we do? And so we drew a matrix of our, well, not a matrix, a graph, let's do it that way, I had accountants, they used Excel, um, of, of how our was doing this, okay, and if this um, up here is number of people in the congregation, and then this is their level of spiritual maturity. We put that spiritual maturity in three broad camps. We said this is no faith. This is growing faith. And this is going. map your congregation and said, how does the graph look in terms of number of people in each sector? Our graph looked a lot like most graphs in suburban churches right around the world, disappointingly. We had hardly anyone who had no faith, right? Hardly any. We had to go look quite hard to find some unbelievers. I'll chat to the he's got plenty. I don't think it's his accent, All right? And so, so we had um, uh, hardly anyone there. And then most of the congregation just lives here in this kind of 30 part here. And then what you do as a church, because you end up getting a lot of people here, is you direct all of your programs, all of your discipleship, all of your entertainment, all of your energy, all of your pastoring, all of your everything into this group over here. But not in moving them towards becoming this group over here. All of your money. All of your money. And so you've got this small little group of leaders serving this group of people, hoping that somehow this group of people will arrive. (laughs) Uh, but it's not actually what we're supposed to be doing we're supposed to be seeing people across the spectrum of, of, of all of these things we're supposed to be making mature believers who will go and get unbelievers who will then in life on life community <coughs> take care of these people now the dirty little secret of the church is these people should actually take care of themselves in life on life community that's discipleship mm-hmm. they just need to walk with other believers <laughs> and then you need to train them to multiply and go get others but that's the way that you can do it And so we sat and we prayed and we asked the Lord and we said, Jesus, God, uh, we don't think that this is right. And we asked God to start changing the shape of this curve. And he did. And so we tweaked some stuff and and, and made a few systemic changes. But mainly we just asked God to to start making us into the kind of leaders who who live towards the Great Commission what happened is that drove evangelism out of our leaders and that meant unbelievers came to faith in christ we baptized them and they've seen those numbers go through the roof over 500 people through the last five years which has been an amazing thing to see um, in the work of jesus christ and then what we started to see is these guys start to get a vision of what it's like to win those guys and so they become more mature and they become into this camp here and you can send them away so so that's what's supposed to be happening in the life of the church all of the time that's an unhealthy graph and i reckon most of our church graphs uh, look quite a lot like that now there'd be other unhealthy graphs right if you have just unbelievers all right then you've got a cult um and so uh you you, you need something else uh, uh, as well but but the, the graph's got to be a little bit flatter than it was there so 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 what did what did we do well we said lord help us well how's he going to help us well acts chapter 1 verse eight and nine. he says you will receive power When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will lie on the floor and just bask in the magnificence of that power because it's just for you, just to make you feel awesome. No, you will be my witnesses. This evangelistic spirit will be breathed into you. But look where you'll be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the (coughs) earth. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. Gosh, I wish I was there. It must have looked so cool. And a cloud took him out of their sight. The Holy Spirit, second observation... Is then given to a church that wants to live this way. But the Holy Spirit is given to the church to do what? To empower multiplication. Because once you start to do this, you're going to start getting more people in your midst. And then what do you do with those people in your midst? Don't just squish them into the middle in a bigger room. Which is what we do. We say, oh, these are good people. Yeah, what do we need? A big auditorium so that these people will feel nice and comfortable. And so it'll be just the right temp and just the right volume and just the right padding on their seats. It'll be amazing, all right? But we, we miss it. The Holy Spirit is gifted to us not just so that we'll multiply our disciples, but then we'll multiply churches. The disciple making endeavor will be supernaturally empowered to go from one place to another. Throughout the globe. Until Jesus returns. Uh, That's really what we're supposed to be doing. Look at what Spurgeon said. You don't seem to believe me. But everyone believes Spurgeon. It's amazing. You can quote Spurgeon at a Catholic gathering. A Baptist gathering. They all go. Oh Spurgeon. He was amazing. All right. Most people in his life hated him. Uh, Little known fact. But today he's like. He's the dude. Spurgeon said. The Christian church. Oh. I love this. Oh. What I would do to have a beard like he had. And to be able to speak like this. The Christian church was designed from the first. To be aggressive. It was not intended to remain stationary at any period, but to advance onward until its boundaries became commensurate with those of the world. It was to spread from Jerusalem to all Judea, from Judea to Samaria, and from Samaria unto the uttermost parts of the earth. It was not intended, listen, to radiate from one point only, but to form numerous centers. From which its influence might spread To the surrounding parts sure. So the big idea of the church Is to make disciples who make disciples And the outcome of that continual Disciple making should be that those disciples Are sent to plant churches that plant churches And those churches should seek To make disciples who make disciples And the outcome of that disciple making Should be that they send people to plant churches Who plant churches It's this ongoing, continual, unstoppable force That's why the gates of hell don't stand a chance If we do it It's an incredible thing. Totally unstoppable. It's how you sit in a a gathering of believers in Cape Town today. People just kept doing this. And eventually it got to us. But it doesn't then discharge on us and say, okay, now, excellent. Just make one big one. Keep doing it. Keep doing it again and again and again and again. That's not a commentary on a theology of church size. I don't have an auditorium in mind that I say that auditorium is godly that one's not. Right. I do have a rand value over which I think um, we step into the ungodly uh, territory. The wrong crowd. <laughs> uh, you guys are like, what is that rand value? In okay. uh, Cape Town currency, about eight bucks. Okay, so it's, uh, uh, but in Joburg, about 50 million, probably. But it's, uh, it's not about one size church, but it's about an, a church of impulse to make more disciples and to plant more churches, regardless of the size of your church. That must be the impulse of the church. From day one of the church. Now some of you might be going, hey, this is risky, right? If your church is anything like my church, you might be thinking, we can't do that. We're just trying to survive here. And so BBC was in that space. We sat down six years ago, We said, but, but we're not even healthy here. How can we live out this impulse? We need a model. We need an example. And, and fortunately in scripture, we have an example of one church that's been so helpful to BBC. And I hope it will be helpful to you as well. And that's found in Acts 11, it's the church in Antioch. So let me just read to you briefly from the church in Antioch. And then there are seven principles from the church in Antioch that we have adopted at BBC. And as a result, we've seen more disciples made than ever before and more churches planted than ever before. And I pray that it continues on and on and on and on. Here we go. Now those, uh, uh, Acts 11 verse 19.
1: Now those who were scattered
0: because of the persecution, that's a big verse. What were they told? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, outer ends of the earth. Where did they go? Nowhere. All right? They were like Jerusalem. We like it in Jerusalem. And so what happens? Persecution. Then what happens? The gospel scatters. And everyone thinks persecution is terrible. But as they're running away from persecution, they go, have you heard about Jesus? No, I haven't. I would like to. He has water. Let's baptize you. And churches are planted as these guys are scattering through the known world. Amazing. Across Jew and Gentile. Incredible thing. Uh, It arose uh, over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to Hellenus also. So they speak to Greeks. It's almost incidental in the text. Preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. Let that embolden your your evangelism, friends. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas. I'm so glad they sent Barnabas. Uh, They could have sent someone else who was uh, less encouraging. Uh, But they sent this wonderful pastoral-hearted guy, Barnabas, to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. See it? And so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. Right? You see it? Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in those days, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas And Saul, jump to Acts 13, those first three verses. Now they were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now why is the church at Antioch an example of this? What is the Church of Antioch called in church history? The cradle of Christianity. From this very unlikely previous, previously pagan little town, a random little bunch of believers come together with the impulse to make disciples and plant churches, and they turn the world upside down. They turn the world upside down. The cradle of Christianity shifts from Jerusalem to Antioch. What an incredible thing, just because people obeyed what Jesus told them to do. Didn't he say, behold, I'm with you always. If you just do this, I'm with you. I'm with you in an incredible way. So here's seven things we see. There's more here. We, we had ten, but seven feels more godly. Um, here's seven things that we see in the church at Antioch that we want to emulate at BBC in order to help us make disciples who make disciples and plant churches that plant churches. Okay? First one is this. They were passionate about and effective at evangelism. They were passionate about and effective at evangelism. Now, now as we know from all of the research, church planting drives and enables evangelism. Church plants, new church works, reach unbelievers better than existing churches. The stats just bear that up. It's, It's way more effective, though, when the people who plant those churches are already engaged in evangelism as a way of life. And so you want to train your people in a useful skill. Train them to evangelize and to share the gospel with their friends. Then you'll have little church planters in and amongst you who you are ready to send and who won't hesitate when you send them. The church in Antioch is birthed by evangelists. Why does it form? Because people share the gospel. That's why this church is birthed. Uh, And and it was shared with a previously unreached group of people. It's amazing. These are Syrian refugees, basically. eh? Incredible in our modern context. The forgotten people of the world running from persecution (laughs) go on to be the cradle of Christianity. Uh, What a thought. Uh, What a thought. Now, personal evangelism, again, has become something that's seen as legalistic in churches. Um, And so we love to mock the methodologies of other people in terms of personal evangelism. I was on a flight to Nairobi last week. And as previously disclosed, suffer from introversion. I don't actually suffer at all, I enjoy it. Uh, But uh, as I I sat in my seat, I was uh, praying to the Lord Most High that he would bless my endeavors um, in Nairobi by blessing me with an empty seat next to me, um, which he did. And then um, uh, a a young uh, Afrikaans guy came and sat on the aisle, um, a a seat away from me. And then across the aisle, a young Indian gentleman sat in the seat uh, across from him. And as I was getting ready to put my headphones in, which is my usual posture when I'm on the plane, uh, regardless of whether or not I'm listening to something, it's my, please don't engage me, because at some point you'll discover I'm a pastor, and then I'll have to share the gospel stature. Um, and so uh, I was putting those in, and I started to hear the Indian guy across the aisle say to the Afrikaans guy, hey, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, what do you believe? And I was like, oh. <laughs> And in my mind, I'm critiquing his evangelism. By the end of the flight they worshipping Jesus together. The guy's given his life to Christ. Turns out he was from a Christian upbringing and wandered far from the Lord. And it was just a divinely appointed yeah. moment. What I realized. Is that the evangelistic measures that other people are doing. Are always better than the evangelistic measures that I am not doing. We just need to encourage. Yes, there's special gifts given to evangelists. But the. But the. The weight, the, the the mandate of evangelism is given to all of our people, starting with us. And, and it's something that helps churches start to do this, if we train people in, in evangelism. Just so you know, we're doing this on Sunday. You can pray for us. So we're in um, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where Paul says he'll lay down his life. He doesn't even expect to be paid just for the sake of the advancements of the gospel. And so we're going to use that as an opportunity to train our people again in personal evangelism. We're giving them little cards so that they can write down three people. That they're going to pray for and we use this little methodology called bless that we got from the ferguson brothers in chicago be prayerful listen eat together serve and share and we're going to ask people to, to strategically for six months pick three families that they're going to do that for you'll be amazed what that'll do in the life of your church i know six months from now we'll baptize people um as a, as a result secondly they sought out and waited for the lead of the Holy Spirit. They sought out and waited for the lead of the Holy Spirit. I love this about the church in Antioch. They fast, they wait, they listen, they pray, they fast some more, they wait <laughs> some more, they listen some more, they pray some more, and then they follow the lead of the Holy Spirit. I wish the scripture was more clear on how the Spirit spoke to them, but it's not. But they definitely listen when he does speak. We, this wrecked our elders' meetings. For about two years, because it just made our elders' meetings look totally stupid. So we'd come with a long agenda, and none of the agenda, none of the points on the agenda were wait on the Lord. Well then, <laughs> how's he going to speak to us, friends? So through his word, absolutely. And his word is going to tell us to what? Wait on the Lord. All right. And so uh, that, that's something that, that we just weren't doing. So we, we would pray, but it was normally transactional. Lord, please heal this person. Lord, please maybe take this person. Um, uh, Lord, uh, save this fellow elder. Um, they, they do whatever it is that you need to do. Um, but, but just sitting and waiting. Lord, what would you have us do? You know why this is risky? Uh, not only does it make you seem less productive in your elders, means it will actually make you more productive, but you know why this is risky? Because what I've discovered is the missional impulse of the Spirit usually whispers, go. It doesn't usually whisper, stay and be comfortable. Usually whispers, go. Spread my fame. Go. All right. Third one. They were known for radical obedience to Christ. They were known for radical obedience to Christ. The disciples are first called Christians, little Christs at Antioch, which means they are recognizable as followers. And imitators of Jesus Christ. We could be accused of many things. But would we be accused of being little Christ's followers and imitators of our Lord? If we want to prep people to be obedient to Jesus in our churches when he calls them to go and plant churches. Then we start by getting them to recognize and respond to Jesus' voice when he calls them to be holy. And when he calls them to sacrificial living. Now again this might seem obvious but just deal with me. Just, just, just work with me just a little bit here before we go to dinner. I have found in most of our churches, I've already told you how I feel about Paul, but we love to debate the teachings of Paul more than we love to obey the teachings of Jesus. The reason is Jesus isn't all that hard to understand. He's just very difficult to obey. Paul's hard to understand, so we love to dwell there. Oh, what do do you think that means? It doesn't give us that much to do. Jesus tells us clearly. Oh, you struck on one cheek, turn the other one. How many times should we forgive? Or make up a number. That's how many. That's hard to do. It's not hard to understand. It's hard to do. When was the last time you talked through a gospel? When was the last time you just you just put not just the finished work? Listen and hear me. All right? Not just the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Not that must be in every sermon, but not just that. How about the teachings of jesus in the sermon on the mount as well Uh, teaching our people to live in the way of jesus christ all right fourth one they were marked by radical generosity I, i love how this church responds in faith to the prophecy of a famine in a land far away they send relief to brothers in judea that they had never met i have no doubt there were other things that this church could have spent the money on a cappuccino machine perhaps Um, new members cards uh, t-shirts for the volunteers Uh, i'm sure they could have spent it on all of those things and they would have been worthwhile expenses but they hear of the needs of brothers and sisters in christ they've never met in a place that they've never been to and what do they do they give with hearts full of faith just believing that god will take that that offering and make something meaningful of it church planning is costly most of us don't do a lot more of it because of the cost it will require a congregation that is used to sacrifice in this area And we get to model that and teach that and live that out. What does your church budget say about what you feel about multiplication? We had a long, hard look at this a few years ago, and we've been making some changes. And last year, by God's grace, just God's grace towards BBC, we managed to give 41% of our income to church planting and justice and mercy. Um, uh, It was just a tremendous blessing. We wish we could have given 50, but ran into one or two things. But uh, 41%... uh, our best day in October last year where where we were running ahead of budget. Okay. I know you're like, what? That happens? Um occasionally. Um and we were running ahead of budget and we had a couple of million Rand sitting in the bank and we're short of space in our building. We could have started a building fund, but literally waiting for the Lord, the Holy Spirit said, give it to widows and orphans. And so we stood in front of our congregation last year and gave four million Rand away on a Sunday and just said, We could spend this somewhere else. We're just gonna give it to these projects. Um, not budgeted for let's go you know the faith that that puts in your congregation you know the generosity that draws out of your congregation it doesn't say to them oh they've got lots of money I don't need to give it goes oh my gosh they're generous with our money let's give Uh, let's give and multiplication becomes possible in your budgeting process fifth one they knew of and gave opportunity to a variety of gifts in the body They knew of and they recognized a multitude of gifts. They knew who were prophets. They knew who were teachers. And they allowed for those gifts to operate. (coughs) Now this is key because you know who you can send. And you know you'll be able to meet the needs of the body after you do send. But you only know that if you know a variety of gifts. Are you building in a pitchy way around a few just gifts? Around a few full-time paid gifts? When was the last time you sat down and assessed what gifts you have in your congregation? And which of them are lying dormant? Uh, Church planting drives out gifts just in an amazing way multiplication drives out gift multiplying groups multiplying ministries multiplying churches multiplying disciples you will find gifts rise to the surface but you've got to go out ahead of it a little bit and you've got to constantly be drilling into your in your congregation to figure out what gifts are sitting there and what gifts are sitting dormant and then make sure that they don't sit dormant any longer it might mean you have to stop doing some stuff that you really like doing well then do that well then do that sixth one a little unlike this room but we're working together. They were counterculturally diverse. They were counterculturally diverse. They were racially and culturally diverse. You've got Jews, you've got Greeks, you've got friends of Herod the Tetrarch, you've got peasants. You've got amazing things there. They were socioeconomically diverse. Just an incredible thing. They've got they, they've got North Africans in leadership in the church. Revolutionary in the day. Re- revolutionary in the day. What an amazing thing. They, they've got Niger sitting there. Which means black, right? It wasn't just a witty name. Dude's a brother, right? And, and, and he's in leadership. And it's not some token gesture. <coughs> They've discipled them in a context that wouldn't have done that. They've done that. What an amazing thing to allow. This allows a church, if you do this, to not just attract a diversity, but also to send a diversity of people. And that allows you to reach a diversity of contexts. That allows you to reach a diversity of contexts. We tried really hard at BBC to change the congregation to be more diverse, and we saw some fruit. But then we planted um, a multicultural leadership team into another community, and that church is diverse from day one. Supernaturally diverse from day one. You don't even need to try because the church just grows up to imitate <coughs> the leadership team. People walk in, they go, there's obviously space for people like me because the guy who preaches looks like me. Right? And that thing just, that's just, you don't even need to touch it. You just stay out of the way. You just stay out of the way. But you've actually got to seek this. Uh, I, and you're going to offend people. You will offend everybody. I, I, if you pursue, radically pursue diversity in your church communities, you'll offend everybody. Do it anyway. Mm-hmm. No, do, it, do it anyway. We have a plumb line at BBC. So we've got four kind of guiding principles and then three plumb lines underneath each, each one. So we've got these 12 plumb lines that we're trying to get people to remember. It's completely ridiculous, but it's, it's what we're doing. One of the plumb lines of the BBC is we, want, we long to reflect the diversity of our context and we long to point to the diversity of the kingdom. We want to be at least as diverse as our context. But actually when people walk in, they shouldn't say, oh, this reflects your context. They should not be able to really put a finger on the diversity because it should point to another kingdom. They should go, this is more diverse than anything I've ever seen. It doesn't actually represent the context in a weird way. Because nowhere else do you see this diversity of people gathered together. It is possible. It's not easy. You should pursue it. Lastly, they were more committed to sending than they were to retaining. Let me finish with this. Imagine the pain when the Spirit says Saul and Barnabas. They must have gone like, I think let's pray again. (laughs) Because if you've got like two dudes in the room you don't want to send. it's Saul and Barnabas, right? Anyone but those two. The mega gifted guy and the wonderfully pastoral guy. It's like such a wonderful combination. These two could do incredible things. Uh, uh, they would have wanted to build bigger rooms around Saul and Barnabas. But he says, send them. And what do they say? Yes. What a loss that must have been. But what fruit was born because of their going? What fruit was born because of the, the, the humble sacrifice of a tiny little seemingly insignificant local church? It becomes the cradle of Christianity. Imagine if a new cradle of Christianity could emerge from Southern Africa. Mm -hmm. I think it could. I think it will. I think it's happening around us here in Southeast Asia. We get to be part of this. If we just do what the church is supposed to do. If we just make disciples who make disciples. Who plant churches that plant churches. A new thing can be birthed here. An amazing thing that we'll get to see in our lifetime. So, I'll just ask you this, and it's time for dinner. So, I don't want to. But maybe a, good, a couple of good questions for you to take home is um, in your local church context, if the big idea of the church is this, then what are you currently doing that you should stop doing as a church? And what are you not doing that you really need to start doing? Of those seven principles, what, maybe what does it reveal? And you're spending a lot of energy, a lot of resource, a lot of time doing some stuff that doesn't actually get you to this end. And there's some stuff that you could be doing that, that you really should start doing that will get you towards this end. It's I know it's simple, forgive me, it's radically transformed the life of Princeton Bible Church and the churches that we hope to plant in the future. Briggs, Steve, that's me.